I'm Karen. And I'm Michelle. We're sisters. And homeschool moms. Welcome to the Layers of Learning podcast. Where we talk about family-style homeschooling. Hi, this is Michelle from Layers of Learning. And I am Karen. We are talking about evaluating sources today. These are sources that you would use for research papers or reports that your children are doing. How do you know what's a good source, what's not a good source? That's what we're talking about. Michelle, just recently you and I were talking about how it's a little bit scary how there's so much information online. Even we were mentioning videos, like fake videos and things. Oh, yeah. Anyone can write about anything, and it's hard to know if it's true or not. Yes, and I think it's a bigger problem now, but it's also not actually a new problem. It's just that before, it was easier to fool us (laughs) because we didn't have anything combating whatever was written in the book. So in the past, when things were written in a book, everyone just assumed, well, it's in a book. It must be true. Mm -hmm. It was never always true. Okay. So it's important to remember that. But I think that one of the tools of today is that it's easy to find an opinion that is a rebuttal. You know, it's easy to find an opinion to compare it to. And that's one of the advantages of the internet. But like you said, it's also a disadvantage of the internet the rebuttal might not be any more reliable than the original source that you were first looking at. Yeah. So when you have a layers of learning homeschool, you are relying a lot on books and you don't know every author or every exact source or if it's authentic or not. And so there's a little bit of uncertainty that goes into that. I kind of love that because part of the fun in our homeschool is when we read different sources and we go, oh, those don't agree. Right. And it kind of sparks a discussion. And, and sometimes they disagree because there's a controversy. There's mm-hmm. an awful lot of controversies. <laughs> and sometimes they disagree because one actually is more authoritative than the other. Often I've noticed that people will say that's wrong about something. And what they mean is that's not complete. Do you know what I'm saying, yeah, Michelle? Like, yeah. For example, a book that's written to a very young child about a scientific principle is probably very watered down. And that's okay. Because it was written for an eight-year-old. Yeah, they're writing yeah. to their audience. But you need to understand, you don't throw every book out just because it's not a perfect book. And yet, we do need some tools for evaluating books and figuring out what do we find is you know, really valid and authentic versus what's not. Because really, anybody can write anything online or in a book or anywhere. Right. And then, like we said, that's always been the case. It's probably compounded now. It's it's more prevalent, but you also hear dissenting opinions more often now. And I personally like that. I like the freedom of these... The dialogue. These, the dialogue. I love that anybody can join in it. It's the great conversation happening everywhere among everyone, not just credentialed experts who have the money to get something published. As long as you can let go of the idea right from the beginning that everything that's written is 100% true, it won't bother you so much because you're sitting there going, huh, that's an interesting take instead of that's fact. Yeah. Yeah. But today we want to give you a few tools for evaluating sources so that as you're looking through books or websites or whatever you're looking at, you can kind of have a meter for how authentic or valid or right it might be. The first evaluation tool is an old one from the educational world. It's called the crap test. 
C-R-A-A-P. That's an acronym. And it means currency, relevance, authority, accuracy, and purpose. So the crap test is something that you're going to look at with each individual source. So the first one is currency. Basically, what you're looking at is how old is this source? Now, on the one hand, we love digging back into history and going, oh, that's a primary source from that time period. And if you understand that, you're looking at it in a different light. In general, we prefer current sources. We say, oh, like if something is written in 1970 versus today, we would choose the one that's written today. We probably assume that there's more information now than there was in the past because we're continually learning. And so we'll choose the one from today, except when you're talking about primary sources. That gives a different picture. If your goal is to know what the people of the time were thinking about something, then you want the older source. Exactly. But for the most part, we're looking to the more current resources. Over the years, as we update layers of learning, one of the things that we do is update the library list and say, oh, that book is out of print, that's older, and we find newer, more relevant sources to go along with it. So for sure, currency is an important thing to look at when you're evaluating a source. The next one is relevance. That means how on topic is it actually? It is the information you're wanting just kind of in a uh, side paragraph where they diverged for a minute, or is it the actual topic of the whole article or book or web page that you're looking at? This especially applies to online resources, I yeah. think, Michelle, because pretty often you'll recognize, oh, they're acting like they're teaching me, but actually they're selling me something. And 90% of this is a sales pitch and 10% is the topic that I was looking at. That's probably not going to be considered relevant. Uh, so you would dismiss that source and say, eh, maybe not. Let's go find a different, better source. Okay, the next one is authority. This one should be fairly easy to understand. If your source was written by someone who actually experienced it or is researching it or has spent their career on it, it's going to be more relevant than some armchair commentator who just decided they have an opinion on it. So if you're learning about sharks, you would prefer a source that it was written by an oceanographer who has studied sharks her whole career versus someone who just researched them and maybe wrote a children's book about them. Both, Both could be good, but the more authoritative one is going to be even better, especially if you're talking about you're writing a research paper for it. Yeah. So one of the main things to look for, honestly, is just if they even list who the author is at all. Like yeah. a, a yeah. lot of times it'll be like, you'll have a web page and go, oh, it doesn't even say who this is by or any connections or any credentials or anything. And yet there's a whole web page. And so you have to kind of evaluate that and go, huh, who is it written by? If you find one that is written by an aquarium about sharks who has, you know, the scientists who are there who are interacting with them and studying them, that's going to be different. And you will see the team of people who are involved and you'll see names and things like that. The same thing applies on books. You can find books that are just written by, I, I don't know, I can't think of a good example right now. Um, just a popular science, a lot of times journalists will write popular level books on something. On a ton of different things. Yeah. But they're not actually an expert on all of no, those e- things. Even if they've been reporting on it for their whole career, it does make them a better, more knowledgeable source than someone who just researched it this week and quickly wrote up a thing so they could sell it. But it's still not as good as the original scientist who was doing the original research. 
sometimes that doesn't matter. It depends on what you're using. It depends on what your purpose is. If your purpose is just to learn about the topic and you're just reading it casually, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with popular level books. I like them. They're, they're very interesting. They keep you engaged and they help you learn about the topic. But if I was doing a research paper, there's no way I would use a popular level book as my source for anything. So we've done currency, relevance, authority. The next one is accuracy. It's really hard to know if something's accurate. And so my gauge for that is it should be the same across multiple sources. Right. If, if one person is differing on a topic and all of the other six books that you got on it agree with each other, probably the six that agree are the more accurate ones. The caveat to that is if the six were written last decade and the one was written now and it's based on new research. Right. That would be the caveat to that. But when you're evaluating, that's part of what you're doing is saying, I'm going to read more than one book about this topic. If you're really researching, you're not sticking to one book and then going, I'm going to evaluate this source. You're actually making comparisons and, you know, actively thinking about the differences. I actually don't think that it's possible to tell if a source is good or not, if it's the only source you've ever read on the topic. You just don't have enough knowledge. Yeah, it's not possible. Okay, the last one is purpose. And Karen touched on this too when she was talking about relevance. If their purpose is to sell you something, if they're talking about the best, most nutritious food in the world and they're trying to sell you that nutritious food, maybe it's not the best source for that. Right. Their purpose is suspect. You can also look at purposes like if they're trying to convince me of one side, that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong, but you should be aware of it. That's different than a source that says, hey, there are two sides to this issue. Let me present both so that you can evaluate them. You just need to start to read with the intention of seeing the purpose that the author has. And it doesn't mean that you say, that's not a good book. I'm throwing it out. But if you're aware of it, you read it differently. Yeah. And if you're writing a research paper, you had better get sources that are on multiple sides of an issue yeah. if you're trying to write about that issue. Even if your purpose is to take this one side or the other, you still need to have read the opposition. Yeah, that is the definition of research. Yeah. It's reading multiple viewpoints from many, many sides. So that's the crap test. And now we're going to talk about more specifics about sources. So when we are writing layers of learning and we're beginning, we're just starting a unit and we're getting kind of our feet under us, so to speak, we start with Wikipedia. A lot of people are shocked by this because Wikipedia is one of those things that teachers say you cannot cite Wikipedia. Right. They have a very good reason for doing that. It is maligned beyond any other source I have ever heard of. Partly that's because it's so easy and to use and a lot of students want to use it. And so they're going to focus on that one, whereas they might not focus on a different unreliable source. Well, the problem is when they only go as far as Wikipedia and don't get bu- get beyond Yeah. It. Okay. So we're, we're going to dive into Wikipedia and why we start there and why we don't end there. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, Wikipedia is an encyclopedia and you should think of it as an encyclopedia. So when you're comparing it, you need to compare it to other encyclopedias and treat it like an encyclopedia. It is not a primary source. It is not original research. And it should never, ever be used as a source in any research paper that's like high school level or above because it's an encyclopedia. I remember when we were in, you know, elementary school, junior high, and we were writing our first papers. At that time, 
the teacher said, you cannot use an encyclopedia. That's not your source in your paper. This is the same thing. You cannot use Wikipedia because it is an encyclopedia. It doesn't mean you can't use it to research, but you can't use it as your cited research. Right. It is a jumping off place. And the cool thing about it is that the parts of the article have citations within them. And so you can click on things at the bottom, like in the footnotes area, and actually go beyond Wikipedia to where that information came from. Yeah, so we're gonna we're going to compare Wikipedia to its own genre, which is other encyclopedias. So we'll compare it to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Okay. okay? So first of all, Wikipedia has long articles as compared to the Encyclopedia Britannica. There's an article on George Washington that at, at the time that we retrieved information about the George Washington article, it had 17,482 words from the Wikipedia source. The Encyclopedia Britannica, on the same topic of George Washington, had only 3,496 words. So Wikipedia is way longer in many of their articles. That's not 100% true all of the time because Wikipedia is pretty diverse and we you know there are brand new pages that crop up every day so you never know what there's going to be but in general they tend to be long articles that are written by a lot of different contributors yeah um the second thing is that there are thousands more articles on thousands of more topics in wikipedia than in the encyclopedia britannica and that is because it is a people sourced encyclopedia in other words they have millions of people contributing to it. And the Encyclopedia Britannica does not have that luxury. They They have a team of people. They have a team of people and they approach experts on topics who each write an individual article. So there is no way that someone like the Encyclopedia Britannica can compete with the sheer amount of hours that people have spent on Wikipedia because it's crowdsourced. Well, and can you imagine printing like in a bound book or even set of books? Wikipedia, like it's that long, huge. Yeah, it's, it's, it's way too huge. big to print anything. <laughs> yeah, remember remember the encyclopedia salesman from back in the day? Oh, we, yeah, door-to-door. Door-to-door, you have to have this set. And they were expensive. and Yeah, and it was like, this is going to be a life investment for you. You need these yeah. encyclopedias. And pretty much only libraries had them and occasional other suckers. Yeah. So <laughs> and now everybody goes, what do I do with this set? Donate yeah. it? <laughs> But but Wikipedia, so that's actually, I think, a strength of Wikipedia is that it's crowdsourced. It has way more articles, way more topics, way more words, way more information than a I, typical. I also love the way that they're connected to each other. Like you'll be reading an article about something and then it will have like the hyperlinked word that's associated with it. And it takes you to a whole nother article all about it. Right. So in the George Washington article, for example... It mentions Nassau Hall, which was a building in Princeton where the British took refuge during the Revolutionary War. And Nassau Hall is linked from the George Washington article. So when you click on it, you go to an entirely new article about the hall. And that's not true in the George George Washington article that's on the Britannica website. It doesn't go in depth enough that it Mm -hmm. would even reference Nassau Hall, probably. Because when you think of George Washington's life, if you're going to sum it up briefly... You're not going to get into that level of detail. Right. Um, Wikipedia also includes more advanced knowledge. Both 
the Britannica and the Wikipedia have articles on quantum mechanics, but only Wikipedia has an article on quantum tunneling. You know, so so like they just can get more in depth on much more specialized topics, and they have access to experts because it's crowdsourced and anyone can come in. If you're an expert on quantum tunneling, of course you're going to write an article about that. Well, that's one of the things that I love is that because it's basically open to anyone who wants to write about it. It's very peer-reviewed. Oh, it is. Like, People think if, it's not peer-reviewed at all, but it's actually far more peer-reviewed than any traditional encyclopedia. Yeah. If an expert reads an article and they go, ooh, that's not quite right, they actually edit the article and it changes. Oh, and, and you think they wouldn't? Do you think they'd let that go? They no can't. way. They can't. <laughs> they can't. <laughs> they're compelled to there fix is, the mistake. There's no way they're going to let that go. That doesn't mean that there aren't mistakes in Wikipedia. They yeah. exist for sure, and also just different viewpoints sometimes. But definitely it's continually peer-reviewed. Yeah, and, and the truth is that a t traditional encyclopedia isn't peer-reviewed at all. The encyclopedia yeah, approaches usually an academic at a university and says, hey, would you write an article about this? This is the you know the general word count we would like, and these are the topics. And they, that one expert writes an article, and yes, they're an expert, but there is zero peer review yeah. of that. And on Wikipedia, of course, it's peer-reviewed to the nth degree. <laughs> exactly. I I mentioned, but I really, really love how the parts that are in the article are then cited. And not every single fact will be, but you'll see the little footnote, and then you can go down below to the footnote, and you can see tons of citations from original sources, from all kinds of other places outside of yeah, Wikipedia. And, and they're often linked to, it links to the original document that is mentioned in the article and you can see the original document. And mm -hmm. so then that's, that's again, that's why we start with Wikipedia because then we can go, oh, here's the original document. That is a good source, that original document. Exactly. So in that George Washington article that you mentioned, mm -hmm. Michelle, there are f about 500 notes and citations from original sources at the bottom of that article, plus nearly 200 books and articles in the bibliography. So that's an enormous works cited page, essentially, yeah. for that one article in Wikipedia. Yeah, and the the Britannica has zero citations or links to original documents or the works of historians. It has none. So the catch is this: like teachers will say, you cannot use Wikipedia. What they mean is you can't cite Wikipedia, but go there and then follow those links. Follow the links to the original sources. Go and research and find out more from the original spots. That's what you cite after you've yes, read those. Because that, that list of 200 books and articles, those are going to end up being your work cited. Yeah, so you're starting out with using Wikipedia as like an annotated bibliography, in a sense. And then you're using that to go and find sources that then you read, research, and that's what you're going to write about. The, the other nice thing about Wikipedia is that it has links to Creative Commons licensed images. And in most research papers, you don't need images. But in a report, you might. Or in a poster that you're making for a presentation or in a PowerPoint presentation, anything like that, you might want images. And those are free to use images. And they're all linked right in the article. Yeah, often you have to give credit yeah. to the source. But it tells you how to do that. It tells you how to do that. Yeah. And then... It's completely free, of course. There's There are no ads or distractions on Wikipedia. Um, Wikipedia also has policies. Some people think of it as a free-for-all, but it's actually not. Mm -hmm. And people who abuse it get banned, and they can never write on it again. 
and there is, like we said, an entire big community peer reviewing everything. And so if there is a rogue person out there, they're going to get banned really quickly and their lies or mistakes or whatever they are going to be repaired. So yes, it can be have wrong information on it and there can be editing wars sometimes on Wikipedia that happens. And when that happens, Wikipedia generally shuts the article down and doesn't allow it to be edited anymore until things have settled out and then they can open it back up again. Yeah. But they, they, part of their editorial rules are that you have to have a truthful, unbiased and neutral tone and tell all sides of a story. I don't think I've ever been on a Wikipedia article that didn't tell the other side. Yeah. At least given time like if there was a new article that day that could happen yeah i guess but given time things tend to correct themselves on it because there are people who are experts who are looking at it and correcting it um and it's cool because you will see notes right in the text that alert you like if a sentence seems biased or if it's lacking a citation like if it makes a claim but there's no citation it will tell you this needs more uh what does it what does it call it Needs a source. Needs or, a source. Or sometimes it will say, is this original research? And with a little question mark, you know, because, uh, so you're alerted right on the public screen to the notes that people are taking. They have questions about and you can know this might not be 100% accurate because it's not cited anywhere. And I need to be careful about using this fact. Yeah, I need to look into it yeah. further. And again, the Encyclopedia Britannica doesn't have any links or citations in it at all. So if they make an assertion, you have no idea where that assertion came from in the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah. And we're not saying it's not true or that they're lying to you. We're just saying... There's less information. There's less information and, and it's not a great way, it's not as good of a jumping off point for you to go with your next level of research where you're looking for your actual sources that you're going to cite in your paper. Right. It it would be very hard to use it as your you know annotated bibliography that leads you other places because those resources just aren't there. It's a general overview in the Encyclopedia Britannica, but it doesn't then lead you to other sources. Okay, so some of the weaknesses of Wikipedia. If there is a politically or ideologically charged topic, sometimes they can be biased. And you have to know, you know, okay, this is a really charged topic and there's a good chance that since humans are writing it, <laughs> yeah, it's going to be biased. So you want to be really careful about those. Also, we mentioned there's editing wars in Wikipedia. It happens frequently. Almost anytime anything big comes out in the news, people will go in there and start doing editing wars on a particular. Yeah, if you read the article, you know, one day and then the next, it would be a different article because people, one person writes something and then another person says, nope, that's wrong. And they edit it and change it. And then the next day, the first person comes back. And so you get the back and forth that happens. Yeah, Um, but like, like we mentioned, Wikipedia typically will shut down those articles and close them so that they can't continue to be edited until the fervor has died down. Um, And then the other weakness is that authors are anonymous to the public. So you can't know who actually wrote that article. The truth is it's collaborative and many different people have written it, but you don't have a list of those authors. Yeah, you're hoping that they are reputable experts who have properly cited their sources at the bottom. Like that's what you're hoping for. But for sure, I can promise you that's not always the case. How do you know, Karen? It's a sad, you know, it's a sad story. Really sad story. I was teaching my kids, this is probably uh, junior high level. Yeah, it's got to be during junior high. My oldest son, Tyler, he was, you know, part of our family school. And I had taught them about plagiarism and how you can't just plagiarize 
a book or an article that you read that you need to actually change it and write it in your own words. And we'd had quite a few lessons about that. And I told them, I want you to practice that. So I assigned them, you know, different sources that they were going to read and then rewrite their own version. And so Tyler decided he wanted to start with a Wikipedia article. And so he read this Wikipedia article and then he decided to put it in his own words. And he saw the little edit button oh on the Wikipedia article. <laughs> and so he hit edit and he started rewriting the article in his own words. <laughs> he didn't understand that I meant, no, use like a word processor for that. <laughs> he didn't realize he was changing it for the entire internet. <laughs> Sorry, world. <laughs> yeah, he just started rewriting this Wikipedia article. Your expert is a 12-year-old boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Who has no idea what he's doing. Probably so full of mistakes. But by the time... You know, I figured out what he was doing because I knew it was up on his screen, but I thought he was just reading it, reading it. And then, you know, you read a few sentences and then you put it in your own words. And that's what I was teaching. So I thought that's what he was doing. Oh, he was. He, he was. He was. <laughs> but yeah, he changed the entire Wikipedia article and it was forever. I mean, not forever changed because, you know, the cool thing is peer review. Someone else came back in and fixed yes. it. Someone was like, who wrote this? Has Tyler been banned for life? He was not banned. <laughs> He, that was a one-time incident many years ago. I trust that the article is corrected. But yeah, I mean, that right there tells you Wikipedia is not perfect. You shouldn't think that it is, and it could be written by anyone, even a 12-year-old boy. But at the same time, it has the built-in tools so that you can say, you know what, nothing in that article that's in that section is at all cited. I have questions about it. There are spelling errors. You know, I think this was written by a 12-year-old. <laughs> So, so that is why we don't end with Wikipedia. Exactly. We, we start with Wikipedia because it can lead you through a topic. You can get a really great broad overview of a topic. You can look into the minutia of a topic and kind of see the rabbit trails and the directions that you might want to go with your own writing. And then you can look at the sources at the bottom that will take you to reputable, good sources that you can really use. Right. So Wikipedia is kind of the first thing, and that took us a while to get through. It's not the only way we research. Wikipedia is one jumping off place for your research. And the next very obvious one that most of the world uses is Google. We all research on Google. Yeah, Google, if you just do a plain old Google search, you're going to get all kinds of garbage. <laughs> think, oh, yeah. I think we all know that. Um, but Google has academic sources on it. I mean, it's a search engine, and it takes you to garbage, and it also takes you to academic scholarly sources. So there are places, specific places that you can go to find better information. One of them is jstor.org. That is a kind of a database, a compendium of scholarly articles that are free for people to search online. So it used to be that you could only access scholarly journals if you were a student at a university. Yeah. It's like the university paid for access to the database. And if you had an email address, you know, a .edu email address that indicated that you were a student, you could get free access to those journals. But otherwise, you couldn't. Now, that still exists, but there are some that are available to people who aren't university students. But, you know, they're available to anyone. So, JSTOR is one. That's one. And then the next one that's I love that they added is Google Scholar. 
Yeah, and that's actually kind of a search engine within a search engine. It's separate from the rest of Google. It's like behind a different wall so that when you search for things on there, you're only getting academic sources. Yeah, you get scholarly journal articles, basically. Yeah. So if you're doing a research paper or, you know, if if I'm a eight-year-old learning about butterflies, I'm just going to Google it. Right, right. But if I'm a high schooler who's writing a research paper or, you know, a little bit in-depth essay or report... I'm going to go to Google Scholar and search for scholarly journals. If it's something that you're going to cite, then you need to look for a reputable source. The next place is the Digital Public Library of America. This is, and, and perhaps other countries have these too. I was looking up, you know, kind of American sources from America. Yeah, but well, it's interesting. We can't always even access the resources for other countries. So it's very hard for us to know where you should go because yeah, you have to use a VPN and pretend that you're from those countries. Yeah, you, you do, but, but, but then not everybody could just yeah, do that, yeah. you know, so you may have different sources where you're at, but in general, you want to look for the scholarly articles, yeah. not just the generic so, ones. So the digital public library of America is basically a library and it has entire books and it has scholarly journals and scholarly articles that you can search for for free. So you go to their website and then they have a search engine on the website and you search that and you're going to get only authoritative. Yeah, it's like kind of Googling work. it, but Googling it with uh, these filters where we're only going to see the scholarly journal things. Yeah. And then the New York Public Library has a ton of stuff that they have put online. That's an amazing library system. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of online sources. And again, it's they put on there things that are scholarly and things that you're not going to be able to get from your public library, your local one, because that's not their, you know, they're not going to have those specific books on deep topics or on very niche topics. It's actually really, really cool that even though we're not there, we can have access to it. We can research so much more than we could when we were kids uh, Yeah. because of these internet sources that, you know, we don't have to be in New York to go to the New York Public Library database. Right. I just want to give a shout out to libraries. Amazing. <laughs> I know. Library, the whole concept of libraries, free information you can just walk in and take. And now that they're online, it's even better. I mean, I just, libraries and librarians are the best. What would we do without the library system? I mean, even Googling it isn't the same as having access to the information that a library provides. Yeah. Digitally and, yeah. you know, physical books. Yeah. And then... A lot of newspapers have archived articles, and this is especially useful if you're doing something that in the history area, of course. This is primary sources. These are This is primary sources. Um, so the New York Times, I know that they have archived articles at least 100 years in the past. And they, somebody at the New York Times has gone through and digitized all of these newspapers from way back when, and you can find the original articles that were taking place during World War II or during you know the Great Depression, and you can read actual articles from the time about what was happening to people and what they were thinking about what was happening to them. Just a couple days ago, my husband was cleaning out his like nightstand by our bed and he pulled out these newspapers and I was like, what are, what are those newspapers? What have you got? And he had saved a couple of newspapers from big event days like 9-11. Okay. And, you know, presidential elections and things like that. And he just had these couple of newspapers and I was like, now, all these years later, that's really cool that you did that. Like, I yeah. would have thrown that away years ago. At, at the time, it seemed like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know he had kept yeah. them. But he was pulling them out, and we were looking at it with all this fascination. Like, oh, look at look at how things were. And I don't know. It was just, it was really, really interesting. But you can see that when you look up 
these archived articles. Yeah, and it's not just the New York Times. Many, many newspapers do that, including your local hometown newspaper. Yeah, and sometimes they're accessible in different ways. Sometimes you actually have to go into the library and they give you like an access key to a database. Um, There are different ways that that's done, but your librarian will probably know. Yeah, in fact, libraries have a lot of extra databases that they subscribe to, they pay for, Mm -hmm. so that their patrons can use them. So if you have a library card from a library system, you also can access those. And sometimes you have to do it inside the library, and sometimes you can do it from home. It just depends on the the database. The terms, yeah. Yeah, but one, one of them is the EBSCO host, EBSCO host. That is a source of scholarly articles and journals in many different areas, and you can get those. I also would like to mention, you can often find journals, especially I want to say scientific stuff, and they're online, and you can see the abstract or the, the you know the introduction of the article or the, mm-hmm. the research, but you can't see the entire thing because the journal puts it behind a paywall, right? Yeah, if you pay but, for it. If you you get get the name of the scientist and you email him or her and ask if you can see their research, they will almost always just send it to you. Yeah. Okay. I just totally ruined all of their paywall things. But (laughs) Uh (laughs) uh-oh, they're coming after you, Michelle. I, I personally think that scientific research shouldn't be behind paywalls, but I get why the journals, I mean, they're, they have to make money or they cease being a journal. So, yeah. you know, it's their way that they do make money. And sometimes I've actually bought an article. You, It depends on the format, but sometimes you can just buy the one. You can read the abstract and go, yep, that's definitely what I need. Yeah. And pay a little bit well, and get and it. If you're doing a major research paper and it's your one major research paper, paying, I don't know, five bucks for the article isn't that big of a deal. Yeah. But often you can really just write straight to the original researcher and he or she will send it to you. I actually think most of us don't realize how much we have access to if we look. Like one of the things that I've realized is we have a local community college in our town. If I walk into that library, then I can use their databases for all of their scholarly journals, even without attending. Yeah, you don't have to if I Yeah, if I walk in, I can't just go and check out books. I can read their books though. I can sit in there yeah. and read their books. I can sit in there and use their computers to access scholarly journals. And their librarians will help you. Yeah, this isn't like I'm being tricky or anything. This yeah. is what they allow. As long as you're in the library, you can do it. I can't do it from home, but I can walk into that library and have access. Your librarian will also be able to tell you, oh, these are the newspaper archives that we subscribe to. These are the scholarly journal websites that we subscribe to. And so you probably have access to some that you're not even aware of. Well, and and Google, this is true of public domain books. And so mostly it's useful if you're looking for older primary sources. But Google has a ton of books that they've digitized the entire book Mm -hmm. and it's online and you can read the entire book online. Again, that's not, that doesn't do you any good if it's a new book that's not in the public domain and you want something that's more current. But if you're looking for primary historical resources, it's really good. Yeah. So, Michelle, I guess one of the big questions that we have to ask anytime we're doing research is, how do I know which sources to get and how many I need? Like, if you're doing a research topic, like writing a research paper, how do you know, yeah, I started at Wikipedia, where do I end? What do I actually need to gather. I I think a a good rule of thumb is that you need one source for each page of a research paper. So if you've got a 10-page paper, you need 10 sources. If you've got a five-page paper, you need five sources. And roughly a third of those sources should be articles or websites, and two-thirds should be books. 
So a science paper might have only scientific journals as their sources. So you might only have, you know, research papers are your sources. You right. don't have any books because you're writing a science paper about a current topic or, you know. If you're doing history, it's probably going to have more books. Yeah. If you're doing science, it's probably yeah. going to have more online articles. Right. So it, it depends on your exact topic. But the rule of thumb is a third articles or websites and two thirds books. Whenever possible, I really try hard to mix up my sources. So it's like I need books and online journals. If I have an expert, I might include an interview. Like it's good to have a variety if you can. Yeah. If you do all one kind of research, it's very apparent. Like, oh, all that they did was a search at their library, you know? Yeah. And so real research is going a little bit beyond that. So you want to try to have a variety of sources that also will just provide you better information because it's different kinds of information that's published in different kinds of sources. So as you're kids are learning to evaluate sources this really doesn't come in until probably high school level but once they're really digging deep into topics and writing research papers evaluating sources becomes super super important so make sure that you teach them the crap test make sure that you teach them where to go for sources like if they're going to wikipedia that is a starting place not an ending place they need to continue on and follow the citations and get to the original research they need to use scholarly journals and books that they can say, yeah, this is current, relevant. It has a proper authority, accuracy, and purpose. So they can evaluate those sources and then make sure that they have about as many sources as they have pages in their paper and they will be all set in their research. Thanks for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating wherever you listen. Ratings and comments help people find happy family-style homeschooling. Visit us at layersoflearning.com, at Instagram, and on our Facebook group. And make sure to tune in next month for the next podcast. In the meantime, we wish you happiness in your homeschool. Have fun learning! learning.